So we've got an interesting uh, night, I think, coming tonight. I'm looking forward to it. That was perfect. I mean, you know, when you talk uh, out of principle or out of doctrine or something and you say, well, you know, we need to make this our focus or whatever the case, it's so easy to get caught up in that and it'd be kind of a, I don't know, like a principle or a bit of advice. But uh, here's a guy who didn't have to have his sins explained to him. He didn't have to walk through his bad behavior when he was a child, have somebody you know lead him through that. He didn't have to uh, have anybody explain what the relationship between Jesus and and God was, or Jesus and Allah was, or anything. You know, I mean, it. it we are engaged in reality in ways that I think are beyond what we recognize and what we, what's the right word for it? Reality is more real and more effective, more powerful than we know. It's like we're lobbying for reality when reality is there. We're, 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 we're aiming for a reality as if it will come close enough um, when it's right here already. So, I don't know. It's a it's really interesting, interesting situation. So, um, and then within that broader reality, what I'm starting to see is that there are central things, and those things are things that directly relate to the revelation of God in, in Jesus. And I don't know any other way around it that you can't go wrong looking at Jesus. Uh, let me tell you about uh, an ascension that we had on Wednesday. It was kind of fun, and it's pretty easy to describe. Uh, the beginning of the ascension, what we saw and experienced was like we were standing in front of the Father, didn't really quite know where it was because his sort of countenance was dominating the landscape. Turned out there were some steps and we were probably in relationship to him on the throne or something along those lines. And then the, the sea of glass came into play a little bit. Um, but anyway, um, the, the first action in there that we experienced was him reaching down, pick, picking us up. And then he turned us around, and you know those little uh, toddler carriers, like it, the front front pack things. So it was like that. At first, I thought I was, he was just holding me, but then I saw his hands get free, and mine were free, and my legs were free. Anyway, and if you've been in ascensions with a group of people, you know that sometimes it's like you're acting as one person together, and other times it's like you're there as a group. There's other people there, and you can look around and see other people. So this was like that. And so the, the, the basic first engagement with, with uh, the Ascension and with the Father was he reached out and picked us up. Very, very much warmth, very much a sense, I mean, real warmth, uh, sense of light, brightness, all that. And, you know, I'm trying to not over-project into it my own thoughts about fire and light and all this kind of stuff, but just experience it. So anyway, found myself hanging on his heart, his chest, and uh, looking out here, and then is when I noticed that there was this thing. It was real smooth. And I, 
it, it reminded me, if it wasn't, it reminded me of the sea of glass it's talked about before the throne. And on the other side of the shore of that was standing Jesus. And he was pretty big, uh, tall, and he had a big grin on his face. And he was just, just sort of standing there looking at us. And the group kind of got the sense that Father was giving us a chance to see Jesus through his eyes. But it wasn't like there was any big zoom in or any special revelation. It was just happy Jesus standing there. And then the horizon behind him, the part right there on the other side of this, this lake or sea glass or whatever it was, which I think was sea glass, um, that part was like a manicured garden, you know, kind of a formal, formal garden. And then beyond that, it went, and it, to say it went to the horizon didn't really describe it because it, it went a long way and then it, it was there at the horizon. And there was a real sense that from this vantage point, looking sort of in the way the Father looked with Jesus as our point of focus and then behind, we could see all the way to the earth and the things of the earth. And then what I noticed started happening, because I was preoccupied looking at Jesus, but then I saw these storm clouds, really like dark, violent storm clouds, start to roll toward us uh, from the edge of the horizon. Well, as they, if they got close to Jesus or closer to Jesus, now he never turned around or anything. He just was looking at us or looking at the Father, holding us or whatever, big grin on his face. But have you seen those time-lapse photos of storms that disappear where the clouds are real dense and all of a sudden they start breaking up? That's exactly what it looked like. And so one after another, these storms would roll. And I was kind of, because I always get overly inquisitive, like, what does the storm mean? And there was no answer and it wasn't the point. Jesus was, he never even turned around to look. He just stood there with, just looking at us and just, you know, being cool and, and enjoying what we were in the Father. What Anyway, we saw. So the, it was like all the trouble that the world could generate sort of was characterized by these storms. And they just dissipated when they came up behind him. Not even that he had to turn and confront him or anything. So that was pretty cool. And then the next sort of revelation of, of detail was glancing and seeing other people. And I felt like a toddler. I felt like a little kid, the appropriate size for one of those carriers. But I looked at some other people, and they looked like themselves. But they were having all kinds of fun. One, one of the gals that was with us was doing this, hanging there, you know, in the front of the father. And other people were doing different things. And I was just like... Uh, have you ever seen or, or carried a baby that way? And they'd start kicking their legs, get all excited, waving their arms. That's what I was doing. So I, my vision kind of went around so I could see myself. And it was sort of shocking because I was feeling like that little arm-waving, excited toddler. But I was the same old bald fart that I am. <laughs> but I was waving my arms and acting like it was really cool. And and so I, I the the... the I don't even know. This is a really long explanation. What am I saying? Oh, the point was the Father had lifted us up and enabled us to, to focus on Jesus. And that took care of everything that was coming against. But it also was, it was just this utter sense of acceptance and, and embrace. And the embrace was a big part. The nature of the embrace was us, who we were, fully, but also fully released into the joy that there is in being a child. And uh, 
we did a pretty good job of not trying to read anything into it or make it say something other than that. And, and it seemed like, which I, I don't always do, I'm, I'm pretty good at looking for, looking for stuff, but what it seemed like was that the point is, I really like you. I really love you. I want you to feel and experience the security of how I of my embrace. And so there was like zero danger, there was like zero anxiety, there was nothing to do. Just keep looking at Jesus, watching everything dissipate behind him, never get past him. Uh, he eventually, at the end of the ascension, he walked across that lake and he started up the stairs and that was when. Anyway, it was pretty cool. So, now I remember why I said this. So it was fun. Uh, and if, if that makes sense to you, great. And if it doesn't make sense, just realize it was a fun experience for us perfectly. <laughs> and it was pretty cool. There is a relationship behind what the Lord is asking us to do. And the asking us to do, the thing he's asking us to do is to be more intentional and more conscious of the Lord in our life. And let that work its way into our daily situation. Now, uh, if you've been here before, you know that as part of the sabbatical, I was doing a lot of construction work and a lot of repair work and various things like that. And some of the projects that the Lord showed delight in and showed off his delight in being with me I mentioned to you were some building projects, but there was also some septic work, which is the, the fact that the Lord has any interest whatsoever in experiencing septic repair through me. So we had another little dose of that today. It's very minor, but uh, over at the other house that we've got to take care of, we need to have the septic pumped. And I don't know if you know anything about septics, but usually it's not that easy to find, you know, where the lid is so you can dig it up because it's buried and everything. So uh, we had had the septic there pump when Laurel lived there one time. She said, well, I, I, I'll go over with you, Dad. I think maybe we can remember it. So she was kind of saying, well, it's about here, it's about here, it's about here, it's about here, literally. So she's looking around like this. It's about here, it's about here. I looked down right there in relationship to her legs. I was standing right here. It's the top, the little top of the, of the ring that you pull the top off. So I know exactly where the septic is, and I just go, you're amazing, Lord, thank you. So I have, over the sabbatical and over these encounters, and now over what the Lord's doing day after day after day with me, I have become increasingly more conscious of the reality, even though I don't fully understand it, and I don't fully understand his motive, the reality of, of his love and his delight to be with me, and to see the world, experience the world through me, and to help me in the, in the details of the mundane things in life. Like today was finding that. It was just, it was super fun, super easy. But then I saw this verse, and this wasn't the verse that the message is about, actually, or the, the thing I want us to concentrate on and, and share our thoughts. But it does typify it. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Now, how many have had comfort from that verse at some point in your life? I have. 
How many realize, how many think there's more room in your perception of this verse for the magnitude of what actually is being said? I think so. And this is what I, I'm sensing God is trying to do. That's what I sensed when he had me up against his chest like this. I don't, I, it's good that you can see Jesus the way I'm seeing him now. That's great. It's good that you can see the horizon. But I want you to understand the significance of me embracing you and liking it, enjoying it. I'm taking delight as you flail around like a toddler. Now, I don't fully understand that. And I, I think about the, the video that we just watched, Jen, about the difference in the gods that this guy was zealously serving. I mean, oh my gosh, he read the Quran every 10 days in an effort to please. But in, in a moment's time of revelation, he began the journey of learning, I'm already pleased with you. I'm already pleased with you. And so Jesus was comforting people who, you know, the, the context of the verses around here is, uh, you know, don't say well, you need this or you need that or you strive after this or you strive after that because your heavenly Father knows what you have need of. Do not be afraid, little flock. A very endearing phrase, right? Or it's a very dehumanizing phrase. We have to choose. Are we animals that have to be cared for? Like, Dumb sheep. and think, That's not what Jesus is trying to emphasize here. He's saying, don't be afraid, little flock. For who? Your father. Not just an abstract father. Not just the father. Not just the first person in the Trinity, if Jesus is the second and the Holy Spirit is the third. Your father. Now, this was way more revolutionary, him talking to a bunch of Jews than it can possibly be for us who have grown up in a Christian sort of Trinitarian exposed consciousness for a long time, because we all know, oh yeah, there's the Father, and so Jesus is talking about the Father, blah, blah, blah. That was radical. That was a radical departure from what they were thinking there. Your Father has chosen gladly. Translators do it a different way. Delights to, is happy to, but has chosen gladly to give you What? Entrance into the kingdom? A ticket beyond your sin? A little dose of forgiveness? A drop of his blood to cleanse you? The kingdom! So, the, re the relationship behind living in the kingdom, what is that relationship? This is what this verse sort of illustrates to me was the title. What is the relationship behind or that acts as the foundation for, or that enables and defines living in the kingdom? Your father. Your father that loves you. And it is new life, of course. I mean, it brings all these things. But we, we have, this is why I think the Lord's being specific about calling to mind, what do you know about this? What do you think about this? What do you experience about this? Because... Uh, I know, uh, when was it? I'm trying to think how many years ago it was that we came under the influence, myself and Vicki and, and Joyland and stuff, we came under the, the kingdom mindset. 
as if we, we weren't under the kingdom before. You know, Assemblies of God, we didn't really so much have a kingdom mindset. We had a spirit mindset or a spirit-filled mindset or something like that. But I think it was when we got exposed to Bethel a little bit. I know it was when we, you know, just some, I don't know, who? Harold, Harold Eberle was one that drove home the idea of the kingdom. But what I did, I realized this, what I did is I transferred an abstract form of discipleship that was getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues driven and that had a big, strong Bible component in it, you know, inerrancy of Bible and all that kind of stuff, which I'm still all for all those things. But I I transferred that abstract concept into an equally abstract concept of the kingdom. Like the kingdom is a structure that there's stuff to get in, in spite of the fact that Jesus said, unless you're born again, you won't even enter the kingdom. Well, being born again is not, that's not an intellectual exercise. Being born is not. You're just born. You're not even responsible for it. You just come out screaming and kicking and flailing your arms and legs or whatever. So it's this, it's the abstract nature of it that you can be and I could be as correct as, I, as we are about our doctrine, about this stuff, about attaching the right scriptures to it, but we can miss the fact that the relationship behind the kingdom and living in it is literally the relationship of the Father's delight to give it to us. He just loves you. And he loves your neighbor. He loves your kids, your grandkids, he loves your parents. He just loves us. And he delights to give us the kingdom. Not on the merit. He said, don't be afraid, little flock. How much less demanding a title could there be than to be a part of the little flock? How much less intellectual? How much less spiritual? How much less organizational? Don't be afraid, little flock, with all these needs. Your father knows you have need of these. Don't be afraid. He delights to give you the kingdom. So the thing that I'm thinking about is how much stuff in the scripture have we missed that is purely, uh, or, or not purely, how much stuff have we read over, glossed over in our reading of the scripture, even if we don't read it like once every 10 days like this guy did. I don't know how long the Quran is, so I don't know how amazing an accomplishment that is. Probably about the size of the New Testament, I guess. Anybody know? Um, anyway, if we read the, the Quran, for, I mean the Quran, if we read the New Testament over once every 10 days for a while, it would still be possible, even though that'd probably be a good thing to give a shot at, it would still be possible to, to gloss over the, the, the simplicity of this relational foundation. That it, it's his desire. And then, of course, Jesus says, you know, uh, the kingdom belongs to such as these. Who is that? The scholars, the preachers, the super disciples? The little kids, yeah. The kingdom belongs to such as these. And the whole, the whole system is designed for that. So this pursuit that, that God's got us on to focus on Jesus and let Jesus reveal the Father.
in your daily life, everyday life, it's not that it's not super complicated. So here's a couple of scriptures for it. So the scripture calls us to know or acknowledge God uh, with us and to know his presence in us. And we've talked about this before, and this is going to be kind of redundant, but uh, fortunately it's brief, so we'll get to talk about it. Uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You remember we've talked a little bit about how the idea of acknowledging can be reduced in its sort of lowest common denominator to just seeing somebody present and greeting them, saying hi. Lord, you're here. Or like if I if I had been thinking when you guys came in, Dave, I would have said, Dave, hi. That's acknowledging, you know. Now, does it involve more, oh, you're awesome, or you're beautiful, or you're amazing, or wow, I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, those are all fine too. But the fundamental thing of this is just notice that he's there. And if you remember, that's the theory behind the competition that this warfare is describing in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, or not flesh, but divinely powerful, destructive fortresses. And this is New American Standard. Last time I, last week when I shared it, I shared King James because it used the word imaginations. This talks about speculations, but we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Now, if if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many at some point in your Christian walk and your discipleship had a mechanical mental, analytical version of obeying this in your head. Yeah, the whole idea of knowing God. I, I, I mean, you know, well, I know, I know. You study, you study, you read, you read. I'm not saying that's just bad, but I'm, I'm saying the acquisition of abstract knowledge about God is not why Jesus came. He came to reveal the Father, and he uses terms like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These words are not my own. They're the Father working in me. Don't be afraid, little flock. The Father chooses gladly to give you the kingdom. These are relational words when they're coming out of the mouth of Jesus. When I taught them most of my life, they're doctrinal words. They're principle words. And we need to back away from them. Because the principles will fill our consciousness and leave our hearts void. And Jesus had that accusation accurately, and he wasn't trying to be mean. He was telling it like it was with the Pharisees. Your lips declare my praise, but your hearts are far from me. Hearts are relational things. Your words can be beautiful in a relationship, but they don't have to make a relationship. They can exist and function without the relationship. So this stuff that's lifting it up, these speculations, imaginations, the arrogances, some of them say. But see, even that translation is interesting to me. The more I've looked at that word, I don't see the justification for trying to make it a pejorative term like arrogance. It's as if the speculation has to be arrogant to be bad. No, it just has to take the place of noticing that God is in the room. That's, that's all it does. You don't have to be a jerk or a narcissist for the, this to apply. You can be somebody who just goes, 
I'm satisfied with just knowing about God. Yay, I love God. But he's, it's, you, don't, you don't appeal to him. You don't acknowledge that he's interested in, in knowing how you're doing or how to solve a problem or how to face a challenge or anything along those lines. You see what I'm saying? And this is a big deal. It could be something like the word distraction. Distraction that takes you away. It from would be, yeah, yeah. Knowing, uh, experiencing God. Yeah, distracted from, derailed from, <laughs> substituted for. Uh, have any? Okay, so since you guys were honest about the first showing of hands, how many of you have had allegiance to certain scriptural? doctrines that did not connect you in a living way relationally with God. <laughs> All right, so now, here's the cool part. There's no shame in that. Let's just get beyond it. Let's not get stuck there. That's not why the Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture. Granted, it does say it's good for uh, reproof and correction and, and doctrine. I'm not saying doctrine's bad. I'm saying that all doctrine is unfulfilled in its inspired purpose if it doesn't help you know God and notice that he's there. Notice that he's with you. Yes, sir. You asking me or them? <sighs> um, I've I've received a I've received a lot of different experiences with God that confirms some of these scriptures. Mm -hmm. I see that uh, God has revealed to you in a revelation way. Uh, my question is, and I've always had this question is how do I get this revelation now instead of having to work through this and you know I've done various exercises reading reading the scriptures uh -huh. and so forth and seeing that that moves it but it seems like there's it there's something that happens to me that now I know yeah yeah that's what I want so how and, do we have better access to yeah that? how do I because I mean, you can give me scripture all day long that I and I read them and I go, yeah, I understand that here. Uh -huh. I want them like I do some other things where I I feel and hear like God's love. I know that I know and it's here. It's in me. Um, trust in the Lord. I mean, those things are are established in my life. Where there's other things that I wish, and I see that there's a revelation that God has given you. I want. I want that. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Well, you could come help me with some septic work and you would see it firsthand. <laughs> Wait a minute. Stay here for a second. Okay, so let's start with what you have. You know, uh, outside the gate of the, the temple, Peter and John said, silver and gold don't we have, but what we have we give you. All right, so you turn around and you explain to these guys one of those revelations that you sort of heard about and knew, but then it became real and how it happened. And I'll sit down and let that happen. <laughs> so this is an example out of your own life 
where what you're asking for on a large scale happened in an individual thing, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, I could do. I could do. Uh, you know, uh, I, when you first became a Christian, you always heard that God loved you, right? God loves you. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Well, I thought that was God. I thought that was too. Here, yeah, God loves me. But I did things in order to help increase his love for me. I did a lot of works. I did everything that I thought I was supposed to do so that I could know that God loved me. And so I went through a whole litany of things to make sure that God loved me, only to have it crumble around me. And it wasn't until that point <laughs> that Jesus said, I don't care what you do, I just love you. It set me free. It was a revelation that he just loved me. And I, I and it was an experience, it was a revelation, and I don't have to go over that bridge again. Because I know it doesn't matter what I do, right, wrong, uh, do something for him, don't do anything for him. He loves me, period. Okay, so Richard, one of the things I heard in that is you said Jesus just showed me. So he broke in to your mechanical structure of, of believing that God right. loved you and did something that made it real. He himself. Correct. Like this guy in the, the, the yes, Islamic just guy. Just like that guy. Like that. Okay, cool. All right, so is it is it okay to ask and to create an expectation? Jesus, would you would you verify this with your own presence? Would you speak to me? Because I've I've gathered plenty of evidence out of the scripture. I know my my doctrines, and I do believe this, but whatever it is, like, I, I'm pretty sure you have some stories where things that you believed became something that you knew. I know you do, Ronnie, with that idea of Jesus in you. And, and maybe that's part of it, Richard. You know, we have come to know First uh, John chapter 4 and believe the love that God has for us. I think you're right. I think that you exercised faith to be a Christian and to believe one of those tenets, which is that God loves you or the Father loves you. So I, I'm not doubting that, but there's a difference, and I think it may be characterized in John chapter or First John chapter four. We have come to know and to believe, or maybe so. Maybe knowing is what we get with our head, and believing is what happens in our heart, because the Bible says, "With a heart, a man believes." Under righteousness, I just don't know how it is, but it's not. It's like the it's like the truth isn't fully plugged into us, apart from revelation personally by Jesus. Now the good news is, He said, "Lo, I will be with you always." He promised to be with us, so there's no reason to stop short of his presence affirming that which we believe. Go, right? 
I'll stand this. Tell way. them. I'll listen. Hey, here's an idea. Um, just like a grain of mustard seed, a little deposit can grow. So if you're able to embrace the idea that God broke through and showed you he loves you, you could be willing to embrace the idea that you can ask him to do something like that for whatever you're reading right now so that you can understand that. And personally, because I'm a little more simple-minded, I would ask him just that rather than show me this one and that one and that one and that one and that one. Even though I want all of those, I'd probably ask him for just one at first and uh, just go about my day with God. See what happens. Expecting. Expecting. Yes. Hey. Has anybody ever heard of R.W. Schombach? No. Yeah. Okay, good, good. I, um, I, I met him in my sophomore year at Louisiana State University. He laid hands on me. Scared the smack out of me. My girlfriend and I went to a tent mini, and um, he was talking about all of these things and laying hands on people and them being struck by lightning and falling all out and stuff like that. And I really felt convicted. I, and so I got up and I got in line. And he had told us one story about a guy. He had brought the guy's wife to the Lord the night before. And the guy came in the next day and he was, he was ticked off. And Schombach said the guy walked up to the pulpit and was ready to fight and he laid hands on him and the guy just laid out and came up, you know, with, with daddy. Well, I'm in line <laughs> knowing all of the things that I've been doing and I'm thinking <laughs> it's going to be more than lightning. <laughs> and I'm watching all these people flutter off to the side and stuff like that. And there was a guy in a wheelchair and they stood him up and he laid hands on him and he stood for about five seconds and he went back down in the chair. And, um, and I walked and there was this, this lady in front of me, a little petite lady in a gray business suit with a skirt on. He laid hands on her. She screamed. Somebody caught her. They carried her over to the side. Now it was my turn. And he looked at me and he said, you don't even need to tell me what it is. And he put his big old hand up like this, put his, put it right there. And I grimaced and got ready for lightning and nothing happened. Nothing happened. But I kind of staggered over to the side anyway. When I left that place, I felt as I felt like I was glass. I felt, he didn't even say you are forgiven. He didn't say that. He just said, you don't even need to tell me what it is. Laid his hands on me, and I went over to the side. I went home thinking I was totally forgiven to the extent that I wanted a big truck to hit me so that I wouldn't have to make another, so that I wouldn't have to sin again. <laughs> It is so, I have that feeling today. Praise God. But it is so different because when I left Schombach, I was so worried about sinning again that I wanted to die. Kill me now. Now I'm not tripping about that because I know that daddy's never going to kick me to the curb and I'm always going to look like a pane of glass to him. Praise God.
Yeah, Tim. I shared a little bit about the Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 at the Bible study, but, you know, I, I think the reality is is when you're living it and that scripture is a part of what you're going through and what it rescues from, uh, that's when it becomes heart knowledge and not just head knowledge. And for me, I think it started out with us as just acknowledging Larry, but then it became something a lot deeper. Where you because, were looking for, yeah, deep, looking for yeah, because we were looking for answers through that scripture, and we were believing God for those answers. And sure enough, He gave us an answer. Now it was a three-year process. He brought us a lot through a lot in that three-year process, but we came out of a lot. You know, that was a situation. You all know the new life story. Meg was his executive admin, and that, and we were headed up the marriage ministry there. Uh, her job was affected. Our positions over the marriage ministry were affected. There was a lot hanging on the things that happened back then. And then there was a shooting less than a year later, and we were there that day too. There was a lot to process. There was a lot that the Lord had to lead us through, and. In that time, I said, Lord, please just give us a word. And he gave us Proverbs 3, 5, that we could trust in him and that we needed to trust in him and follow the path that he lays in. And he led us here. And it was the right decision. And that was 12 years ago. Yeah. And we've been blessed by that decision, just trusting in the Lord. The other one that he gave me, because I was one that always thought you had to run to the altar if you sinned, and like David was talking, for me it was when I was a kid, I went to confession, and I wanted to go home and hide in the closet until communion the next day because I didn't want to screw it up and sin and not be able to have communion. So that was a different kind of pressure. But he showed me 1 John 1, 9, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Now, I believe, like I told Larry, that's just for us. He's already forgiven us our sins through Jesus Christ, right? But when you need that extra assurance and you feel like, gee, I screwed up, <laughs> I just use that scripture. And I, it's just something that comes over you and say, yeah, he's forgiven you. You don't have to keep asking. He really has forgiven you. And then, of course, my favorite and it's my favorite because now I think of, you know, and that's John 14, 23, which says, you know, um, in that day, you know, I'm in my father, you're in me and I'm in you. And then I think about anything I can't do that I can't do in the flesh. I've got Jesus residing on the inside of me. I can do anything through him. And I don't have to rely on my own resources. I've got the best resources there are in the whole world. Thanks, Scott. Oh, praise God. I wrote a book. No, I'm just kidding. That's that's tomorrow. Uh, actually, this was yesterday morning, and I was uh, having my quiet time with the Lord, and he gave me Proverbs 3, 5. Okay. Only thing, this is from the New Living Translation. If you, of course... If you want favor with both God and man and a reputation for good judgment and common sense, then trust the Lord completely. Don't ever trust yourself. In everything you do, put God first and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. Don't be conceited, sure of your own wisdom. Instead, 
trust and reverence the Lord and turn your back on evil. When you do that, then you will be given renewed health and vitality. Yay! Honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income, and he will fill your barns with wheat and barley and overflow your wine bats with the finest wines. And then, just like Leary's conversation, I had a conversation with the Lord, and then he said, I am, capitals, I am, the great disruptor of the status quo. He shows us our weaknesses, and we must then make a choice about what to do with them. Do we just allow them to linger and fester, or do we deal with them by prayer and asking for his help? Like Ananias and Sapphira, do we lie to ourselves, lie to those around us, and to the Holy Spirit, and allow death to creep in? God forbid. Only he can make our crooked path straight. Our focus must remain on him. While the circumstances of the world are in turmoil, God is at work exposing the darkness. What Satan meant for evil, God is able and willing to turn to good. We must allow the process in us and in the world to take place. Stand back and see him at work. When we surrender to him, he will do a quick work, for he is kind and gentle. Lord, let our light shine in this darkness by following the light that you shine on us in our path ahead. You are the glory and the lifter of our heads. May each and every step we take bring us closer to the reality of Christ in me, the hope of glory. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever. Amen. Amen. A pretty good interaction. Amen. Oh, yeah, come on, Terry. I just have a Reader's Digest version. I don't have a book. Um, so... As this has become applicable in my life, what I realized is I was so afraid to take a step out. I would go through all the first three, but when it came to making my path straight, I was concerned about where my foot was going. And God said, no, that's my job. Your job is to step out. My job is to make sure that when your foot lands, your head, you're in the position that you're supposed to be doing. And there's many times where I went to step out and pivoted and was going the other way. Um, he's also, he's been telling me for years, in fact, he even told me this week, he keeps me in all my ways. Right? Over and over and over again, he keep you know, I've, I keep you in all your ways, all your ways. The Terry ways, the God ways, the any other ways that I do, he keeps me in all my ways. And then there's a Jesuit priest named um, Gregory Boyle. He wrote a book called Tattoos of the Heart. He worked with gang members in L.A. And this is my favorite quote of his. This is what we seek, a compassion for what the poor have to carry rather than to stand in judgment of how they carry it. And I just love that. I was like, oh, and then God goes, all those things that you've done, you were poor in spirit. So don't judge the way that you carried it. Just have compassion on the fact that you went through it. And then the biggest thing that um, has helped me is when I lower my standards of myself to the Lord's because I put standards on myself of what I should have, could have, would have. Okay, hold on. Say that again. You lowered your standards, standards to God's of yourself down to, to God's. match God's standards. Right. Because 
I don't have the same standard for you. You can do whatever you need to do, and I know that there's grace and love for you. But for me, I had a standard here, and God's like, you need to lower your standards to mine. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful. Okay, I'm going to segue, Tim, into that passage from you, but we got, uh, we got two to look at here, and it, they're two important ones. So here's the first one. Um, scripture also reveals what it's like to live in the opposite spirit of the kingdom, right? Not in that relationship of trust, not in that way, not letting the Lord be your guide, not letting his voice be your guide. And it says this, all of us have heard this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, does it say the wicked man says in his heart, there is no God? What does it say? Fool. Now, a foolish man can be wicked. Matter of fact, it's pretty likely that, that wickedness is going to find its way into the fool's world. But a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Then it talks about this collapse. They're corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand and who seek God. They've all turned aside together. They've become corrupt. But the point, and, and, and any time that I used to read Scripture in a discipleship, kind of personal discipline sort of way to try to get something out of it, I would blow through the first part, and I would hone in on the corrupt part and all this kind of stuff. Because I felt like I could correct that or that I had to correct it. But what it says, I mean, the main part of this, obviously, is the first verse, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What is it that leads to all the corruption, leads to all that other stuff? It's believing that there is no God. It's saying in your heart, letting belief grow up in you, that there is no God. Now, what's interesting about this is this is one of the only Psalms that is repeated almost verbatim twice. I don't know if there's any others. There may be, but I didn't have time to study it out. But I'm going to look because there just seems something really super important. And Psalms 14, like 1 through 7, and Psalms 53, 1 through 7, say almost exactly the same thing. So I'm going to read those to you. The whole thing, real quick, both of them. And then I'm going to point out in that little note about Elohim and Jehovah, Psalm 14 stays with, uh, goes back and forth between talking about the fool says there is no Elohim, but the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, says, Jehovah looked down, and so on. And the Psalm 51 um, is the one that sticks mostly there. So let me, let me see if I can find him real quick. Have you ever, did you guys know that this is, this Psalm is in the Psalms twice? Doesn't that seem like it's probably significant? I mean, there's only 150 of them, and and there can't be that many, it doesn't appear, that are uh, repeated two times. So here it is in, uh, what is this, uh, Numeric Standard. This is Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? 
There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You will put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Now, you notice how in there they translate it back and forth between God and Lord. In Psalm 14, it's translated uh, God for the word Elohim, and it's translated Lord for the word uh, Jehovah. Now, over in Psalm 53, and so telling you that it's the same psalm repeated, I'm not trying to infer that it's just a psalm that speaks about the same thing. Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustices. There is no one who does good. God has looked down, Elohim and not Jehovah. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupted. There is no one who does not go- does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge, who eat up my people as the bread and have not called upon God? There they were in great fear, where no fear had been. For God, Elohim, God scatters the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God has rejected them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. I read a couple of uh, scholars that said these are partly repeated because they're, uh, they're more likely than not carried a different place in the Psalter of Israel, and so they had a different tune to them, and there's that Jehovah God difference. But what struck me as it, if what's important about living in the kingdom is what's in the heart of your father, then this repeated psalm says that the important thing that keeps that kingdom relationship from being there is saying in your heart, there is no God. Now, does anybody in here indulge saying in your heart, there is no God? Not consciously. I'm, I'm not putting that on anybody. But do you ever worry about a circumstance that might come up in your life as if there's no God? What's the difference? Do you ever anticipate a task and think, oh my goodness, and and the anxiety in facing that task is because you're assuming that God's not going to be there for you? Do you ever place a standard on yourself, Terry, (laughs) as if God wasn't there redeeming it and bringing out good from it anyway? Even though the scripture says that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called to his purpose. You see what I'm saying? Do you see how important this is? Realizing that God is with us and we are with him. So I think what the Lord's trying to help me understand is that you can make a doctrine out of this, Larry, and it'll be just as ineffective at transforming you and and, and heading off your anxiety as every other doctrine that you've ever made until you get revelation. So Richard, I I love your pursuit and your question. Um, And I, I think there is at least the beginning of an answer in the next slide.
or actually two slides. All right, so now we're back to this, this thing. Uh, the larger context of John 14.20 expands this whole God is with you to include the Father, to include the Holy Spirit, and to include Jesus, of course. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Now, there's the first sense, right? I confess to you, in all my years as an Assemblies of God student and pastor, I don't ever once remember the emphasis being placed on, oh, you know the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to be in you and with you forever. Matter of fact, the Holy Spirit was the most conditional freaking commodity that our whole denomination traded in. Right? You gotta be holy, you gotta you gotta seek, you gotta fast, you gotta do this, you gotta maintain it, you gotta use it or lose it. I mean, like my gosh. It wasn't even like he was God. Just like Jesus is not God in a lot of people's Trinitarian practical equation. Right? Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to harp on myself in those days. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. So there is union, right? There is presence. These are Jesus' words too. Like he's not lying. He was preparing them to face his own death. His arrest and death. That the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But... You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. This is past tense in our life. And if it's not past tense, just because Jesus said it to the 12 disciples or the 11 that remained shortly hereafter there, it's past tense because of Pentecost. In that day, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh and your uh, old men will dream dreams and your young men will have it and your you know, handmaidens and so on. Sound like Joe Biden right then. Because I didn't remember the rest of the verse. <laughs> Forgive me. Hang in there, Joe. It's sympathetic pains. You know, you know what I mean. Uh, okay, then Jesus goes on and he says this. Immediately following, and, and, and he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Again, the core of the promise is his union with us. I'm going to be with you. And that makes you think back to what he ended up saying shortly after this, because that came with resurrection. Go make disciples, teach them to obey everything, baptize. I'll be with you every day to the end of the age. Do we live as if there is no God? Sometimes we do, if we forget that promise. So what do we do? Do we make a, another workout of trying to remember it? Or do, do we go, gosh, Lord, I am so sorry. I woke up this morning... I got all anxious over this tax bill or whatever it is, you know, and I was acting like you weren't with me. I'm sorry. Just that simple. Lord, I was, I, uh, I indulged in a couple uh, too many news broadcasts in the last four hours. And this bitterness in me, it's a projection of what the world would be like if you weren't with me and weren't with us. I'm sorry. 
And repentance is not just the I'm sorry part. It's literally changing your mind to think, oh, or it's a, it's a reflection, a direct reflection on the warfare that's talked about earlier in 2 Corinthians 10 when we looked at it. It's a vain imagination. The most vain imagination possible is the imagination of a tomorrow in which God is indifferent to you. It isn't possible unless he is a liar. And let every man be a liar, but God is not. Somehow, and maybe this Richard can begin to spill over from particular to particular more quickly, we have to settle that issue in our heart. So in other words, you have an anchor about the Father's love. Let that anchor you in everything else. You have an anchor about his provision. Let that anchor you. You have an anchor about him being in you, with you. You guys have an anchor about that provision. You also shared an anchor about um, reconciliation and, and the removal of that sense of rejection. Well, don't let the next rejecting thing have a root. Go back and say, well, there's no reason to think that rejection's going to be able to take hold now because it didn't have the ability to do it even when it was my own dad. I mean, we, somehow we got to believe this stuff. And, and then he goes on and he includes the Father in the same context. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you'll see me because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So that connects us to the Father, right? All right, but there's a problem. I just taught this like a doctrine. This is what it says. This is what we should believe. I didn't give you a reason or myself to believe it because I didn't teach it in context. Context in its simplest form is, is where is something revealed in? What brackets it? What begins it? What ends it? What seals it? Don't overlook the context, no matter how special it is to believe that I'm in you, you're in me, all this kind of stuff. If we let it stay abstract, or what I mean by abstract, if we let it stay distant, if we let it stay unrelational, not relationally realized and not rooted in relationship, then we're going to constantly need to be reminded of it and we're going to believe it like a doctrine. Here's what the context is. The part that's not... Bold face is what we just looked at. It hasn't changed a bit. It's as true as it ever was. But look at what it says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the line that leads into this promise that the Holy Spirit's going to be with you, that I'm not going to leave you as orphans, and the Father, I'm in him and you're in him. That's it. And then what the bracket at the end of it is, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves him will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now, here's the problem. We teach those two sets of verses as something independent of the promise of him being with us, and then we make them sound conditional. You know what I mean? Like, well, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, how about this? You got issues with the commandments, Ronnie, sometimes? Well, if you'll love him, you'll keep him. You see the difference? But we translate it the other way. You don't love me, Dave. 
Because you don't keep all my commandments. You just, two weeks ago, there was one that you didn't fully keep. And we're open to that kind of crazy accusation. That's not what this says. This is a passage about Jesus making clear he is with us. And he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. After the resurrection, uh, a famous dude had to have this lesson reinforced. His name was Peter. There on the beach, when he saw Jesus, he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter had not yet got the full message that I'm trying to get myself and, and we're communicating about tonight. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you like me? Peter, do you like me? You know, the point is, do you see how these two things need to be understood together? You can't pull verse 15 and verse 21 and make them uh, a whip to obey the commandments of the Lord as a standalone kind of legal reinforcement. You can't do that. It's illegal. You have to take out the heart of it, which is this. Now, what's the heart of those commands? What is the most common word in verse 15 and verse 21? Love. If you love me, you will keep my commands. He who has my commands and keeps them. So we've got two keeps now is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. So it's four to one or five to one. Love. So here's what my point is. The thing we're missing when we don't know, or if, if we're in one of those areas, Richard, where we've got, where we want more revelation, we see it, but we don't yes get it, Probably what we're missing is associating that in this relationship of love. Meaning, the basis for me getting the revelation that I need is, is talked about in 1 John, where he says, we love because he first loved us. So if we're facing a struggle in some area, not knowing, or, let me put it a different way, if we're tempted to think like a fool in a certain area, that is thinking in a way that assumes God isn't with you on it. Back away from that and say, Lord, I don't feel this right now. I don't, I, I'm honest, I, I don't think I can even trust you in this except just with the sort of mechanical words of my mouth. But I love because you first loved me. We're in love, and you are love. So I am going to lean into the relationship. Like, I personally think, Richard, you are in, a, in one of the most beautiful positions of anybody I know to grow the way you do because you've got the big issue settled. You can always say, I have screwed up, or you could always say, I don't understand this, but I know you love me. I love you. There's not a doubt about that. In the context of loving is where all this revelation comes. It's relational. It's not doctrinal. And so if we, if we stop settling for it being doctrine, all right, 
Why is love that basis? Now, here is a verse that I don't think says anything about love. But because love is the relational matrix that makes knowing God, who is love, real, I want to read a verse about zeal and dedication and and, and devotion to God from Paul that doesn't say anything about love. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ and righteousness which comes from God on the base of faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that they may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Adam, in your church background, did that scripture ever put pressure on you or anybody in your... Of course. It's huge. How in the hell do I get... Oh, sorry, that was bad. Uh, it was accurate. That stuff. How did Paul get that stuff? Does the scripture that Paul wrote, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, come to mind? If I have faith to move mountains and I don't have love, it counts me nothing. If I speak with a tongue of men and angels and I don't have love, I'm a sounding God. Paul knew this. The emotion that we read in there is not the legalistic diligence of a Pharisee anymore. It's a Pharisee that ran into love on the road to Damascus and in the laying on of hands by Ananias. Paul knew he was loved by Christ. And then, because of that, he knew he was loved by the Father, by Elohim, by Yahweh. But he didn't know that before. He knew he served him. But he didn't know he was loved. We need to realize that love undergirds everything that Paul is saying there. And I didn't think about it before, that thing about 1 Corinthians 13, but that's a perfect example. Everything that Paul is lusting after, longing for, searching for, he has a hope of, he knows his hope is because he's loved. So, Love is how we get the revelation. That's kind of my answer to that question. And I thought it was a beautiful question. Love is how we get that revelation. What is it that you feel... Oh, Terry's gone. I was going to ask her a question. (laughs) You know, Terry's thing about lowering her standards. That's a a very candid and wonderful way to put that. How can you get away with that? Oh, because you're loved. Because he loves you. He loves me. Does that mean that we shouldn't be zealous or that we shouldn't take these things? No, of course not. But we need to keep them in context. The context of I'll be with you always was wrapped in, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the Father will love you. And we'll be with you. Love, 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 love. Five to one. (laughs) Over the keeping part. Love. It's not wimpy. It's not weak. God is love. He's not wimpy. He's not weak. The reason that Jesus 
was sent was because of love. That really wasn't a wimpy motive, a compromise motive. Okay. Bring Laurel out. Yeah, come. But it keeps it keeps occurring to me as we're talking about all this that love is not a passive word. Relationships are not passive. And that's it's all about the connection and the speaking. So like to me, I can read the the passages. I've thanks to my mom, I've read the Bible from a very early age. Um but continuing to pray and to speak and to go to him personally and hear him even just quote a Bible verse I've read or heard many, many times, that makes it personal. But that's because you're constantly talking. I mean, y'all know our kids. You can't be around Lydia without being touched and loved and hugged all the time. And Sam's always telling me that uh, we're the same. Um, because in a relationship and love, communication's always happening. So I don't know, I just, as we're talking about all this, it seems to me like if I want to become and know more, I have to keep coming and talking or just sitting and, and listening and waiting. So that's Praise it. God. Praise God. Yeah, go ahead. I want to preface this by saying that, first of all, this was a story. It's a Christian brother friend who was on Facebook and was introducing somebody uh, so it's not a Joyland doctrine, it's not a Tim Britton doctrine, but I'm going to share what this guy shared. This friend of my friend is an atheist. He was always an atheist. He never believed in God. And he died. And he said, I found myself in heaven. Now he's an atheist, huh. and he's in heaven. And he said, now this is his words, he said, God loves everyone. Everyone's here in heaven. I know that can be taken as a universalist doctrine, but I'm telling you, an atheist went to heaven and he said, God loves everyone and they're here. Yeah. One of the, one of the um, interesting juxtapositions to that is if you get in some really solid, uh, rigid forms of Reformed theology, they actually say that God doesn't love everyone. He doesn't love until, until there's a conversion in our lives. Um, that makes God a lot like us. Too much like us. So. 